Mortimer, Episode 11. Thank you for tuning in to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. I've never paid much attention to those soapy radio dramas, but apparently there is now one about our esteemed master of the house. Several hours later, the family was settled in the living room of the house. Despite Bobby Sue's best efforts at cleaning up the mess from Percy's earlier escapades, the whole house still smelled like an outhouse. I don't know what we're going to do, Bobby Sue looked up from her needlepoint. Percy's got to get an education. I'll help Pa with the tobacco. Ah, no, Jeb rounded. You're going to finish school. And the only way I see it is to send you to boarding school. Teach you to behave like a normal person. Boarding school? We can't afford that, baby. Bobby Sue held back a tear as she thought of her only child going away. Don't send me away. I know how to be normal. I'd rather die than go to boarding school. An old boys' school sounds good to me. Jeb lit his pipe, smoked it thoughtfully. I'll miss you around the farm, though. But, Jeb, we can't afford it. Well, we got some money saved up. We'll make it work. Percy was aghast. But I'll be done with school in a year anyway. Not expelled, you won't. You brought this on yourself, Jeb shot back. I'm sending a letter out in the morning. The family fell into silence. Percy bemoaning his horrendous misfortune and Jeb contemplating his tobacco while Bobby Sue grieved her son having to leave home. Suddenly an idea came to her. I have it. Jeb was sceptical. You have what? Bobby Sue's eyes were wide with excitement. Jeb, who do we know that can turn a half-wit nobody into a well-groomed, upstanding aristocrat type? Jeb and Percy glanced at one another quizzically. No more, Percy cried out with sudden realisation. Just send me to Bowden School. It's the perfect solution. It's Percy's only chance, baby. Jeb hesitated, his expression betraying how much her words pained him. But finally, he nodded in assent. We leave tomorrow. No! Percy moaned. Jeb stood up and straightened his pants. I'll get the car ready. Wonderful. I'll go upstairs and start packing the bags. After Bobby Sue was upstairs, Jeb turned to Percy. Boy, he said. There's just one more thing. Percy looked up dejectedly. Yeah, Pa? Just how did you get all that shit into the schoolroom like that? Percy's mouth spread into a wide grin. Buckets, Pa. 
just like you taught me. Mortimer's domicile was in utter chaos, moustache twitching in agitation and hands folded behind his back. Mortimer Iscariot stood at the top of the staircase and surveyed the mayhem below. Strangers fluttered about the front foyer, scrubbing, wiping, dusting and sweeping. Through the open front door and on the front lawn, men wearing classless khaki suits scrambled back and forth carrying planters and pushing wheelbarrows heaped with black soil. Their presence was particularly ridiculous to Mortimer, for there was no more utility to a brand-new hydrangea flower than to an old bed of tiger lilies. Flowers did not change nations. Flowers did not solve wars. Moreover, the excrescence they had been erecting along the walkway for the last day and a half reminded Mortimer of nightmares he'd endured as a child. He shuddered and forced his thoughts back to the present. There was a much more important issue at hand. Neville had forgotten to bring him his breakfast. Mortimer had been up with the sun and spent the entirety of the morning working, and at this moment he was at the crux of an exceedingly important project. However, because of his butler's pugnacious negligence, it was very possible that everything would be ruined. Mortimer scowled as a particularly enthusiastic interloper zipped by, a trail of silver teal flowing gracefully behind her. She all but screeched to a halt as another woman came around the other corner. "'Oh, dear, sorry about that,' the first said with a voice reminiscent of a rusty door hinge. "'But since you're here, I've loaded more in the Scooby.' "'Oh, all right. Uh, are we bringing it around the back?' the second asked. The rusty hinge nodded, and with a dramatic flip of her cropped cut hair, continued on her trajectory toward the house and into the backyard. Mortimer paid no notice to the second woman, who had now rushed out through the front door to the aid of her friend's mission of corrupting the sanctity of his home, for at that moment he was plagued by a particularly unpleasant rumble from his digestive tract. He must do something about these pesky physiological urges quickly, for they had already interrupted his focus, and now his attention had been driven away from a very critical matter, her mistress Esquire. She was his masterpiece, a chef d'oeuvre even. She would be Mortimer's magnum opus. But something was missing. Mortimer knew, of course, what it was, but that fact did not eliminate the possibility that he could produce satisfactory work without amending the etiology of his displeasure. He straightened his lapel and reminded himself that it was, indeed, very possible that the solution to his present state of irresolution might render turmoil that would exceed the unrest in which he had been suffering for the past weeks. But then again, he worried, perhaps he would never be satisfied with his work. The unrest may never dissolve. He might miss his opportunity to rectify the situation. Her mistress was due to depart in three days, and Mortimer had yet to come to a decision. Should he proceed as planned, or should he take a risk? Mortimer allowed his mind to indulge in this possibility for just a moment. His imagination filled his entire being with a sensation so powerful and so sybaritic that it made him dizzy. He reached out and grabbed the banister. "'My God!' he shrieked involuntarily as his hand grasped the pernicious garland that had been wrapped around the wood. His surprise rendered yet another attack from his stomach, and he groped his midsection in protest. An elderly baroness stood at the base of the staircase and looked up with condescension at Mortimer. "'Are you all right?' her tone sounded more accusatory than concerned. 
Noticing that his cover was blown, Mortimer released the banister and pesky garland and took several steps backward into the protective darkness of the upstairs hallway. I've already seen you. Come out from there, the baroness shouted up the staircase. Mortimer squatted down in the shadows in hopes that the woman would give up. But then he felt a presence behind him. The teeny tiny hairs on the back of his neck stood up and he felt a chill. It started at the base of his spine and travelled violently up his back into his occiput. Aye! Abandoning his hiding place, Mortimer leapt up and without even looking back, he shot blindly forward into the air. Wait! Stop! But the woman's warnings fell on deaf ears as Mortimer trumpeted down the staircase, his massive figure a whizzing ball of kinetic energy. He did not see his mother watching from the top of the stairs with unhinged jubilation. He moved faster and faster, his eyes wide and face frantic. His mouth was open, but a scream did not emerge. The baroness stood frozen like a deer in the headlights of a meteor as Mortimer tripped and careened through the air toward her. Having heard the oh-so-familiar high-pitched pig-like squeal, Mrs. Dixon shot up from a position near the gardening bed. Had something happened to Mortimer? Had she missed a letter demanding more money? Had the threats come to fruition? She ran in an exceedingly unladylike manner from the yard, arriving at the front of the mansion just in time to see Mortimer miss a step on the massive staircase. She came to a stop to the side of the staircase and put her hands to her cheeks, watching impotently as her squire's colossal body flew through the air like an oppressive albatross. She heard the screeching. She saw his victim's expression of stark fear and paralysis. She saw Mortimer's tongue flapping in the wind. She saw the woman raise her arms in front of her face. With an oomph, Mortimer smashed clean into the woman, knocking her up into the air and then down again at the base of the stairs. Mrs. Dixon was compelled to cover her eyes in embarrassment. Having heard the ruckus, several people had rushed into the foyer, and at the sounds of their gasping and surprise, Mrs. Dixon forced herself to peek through her fingers. Relief was quickly replaced with a new horror, as a realisation struck. A man had appeared out of nowhere and bent down over the two. Mortimer was plastered atop the woman, face to face. "'I am being molested!' came the muffled shriek. To Mrs. Dixon's amazement, the woman was still alive, in fact quite alive, it seemed. "'Do let me help you!' John Adams Iscariot reached down to assist the Baroness. "'No, not him! Get off me, you bitched whale!' Mortimer made no effort to move. "'Breakfast!' he murmured into the face of the woman upon whom he had landed. With all of the strength his gangly frame could muster, John pushed Mortimer off the woman. Do let me assist you. She accepted John's hand. Mrs. Dixon was immediately by her side, the shock having worn off enough now for her to move. Are you quite all right? Her voice was breathless. And who are you? The woman spoke with authority, despite the disarray of her hair and condition of her garment. I'm Mrs. Dixon. I I would like to speak to the mistress of this estate. Oh, I'm afraid the mistress is indisposed. Mrs. Dixon felt a flush of irritation at the condescending tone. I am running the estate. A coloured woman? John chose that moment to interject. Quite uncustomary, I know. He was all charm. Let me introduce myself. I am John Adams Iscariot. I just arrived from New York City. She raised her nose. 
And why should I care about this bit of trivial information? John bristled beneath his tweed jacket. The master of this mansion is my late brother. I am in the process of taking over the property. Taking over? Mrs. Dixon was livid. <coughs> Mortimer groaned from the floor. Mrs. Dixon abandoned the two and went to Mortimer's side. Seeing that he was quite all right, his fall having been broken by the haughty matron, she helped him into a seating position and brought a focus back to John and the woman. I do hope that you will run this place in a more civilized manner. It is quite improper for a colored person to run a multi-million dollar household. Now I assure you she's not running the household, but rather overseeing the interior details. John grabbed the collar of his coat with one hand and pulled a pair of wire glasses from his pocket. Running things, of course, is left to the Iscariot blood, not to mention those who are also more austere and intellectually astute. It was clear to Mrs. Dixon that John was putting on a show. Since his acting was so awful, she suspected the woman would not be fooled. John went on, placing the glasses smartly on his narrow nose. I would be the person in charge of the Centennial shipping line. The woman narrowed her eyes with interest. Who did you say you were? John took off his hat and bowed slightly. John Adams Iscariot. I was named after the second president of the United States. Oh, I'm sure you were. Neville entered the foyer at that moment, carrying a small grey dog in his white-gloved hands. I found a poodle, he announced with boredom. Excuse me? Mrs. Dixon felt a flutter of panic. Of course, this house is being overrun with vermin. The Baroness glared at Neville with disgust. And who might you be? John tried to redirect her attention back to him. I am Mrs. Longhorn. Mrs. Dixon laughed out loud, for there was clearly some mistake. Mrs. Dixon knew Mrs. Longhorn was at least twenty years younger and a hundred times lovelier. Neville? Mrs. Dixon grabbed Neville's arm and drew him away from the others. Matama has not had his breakfast. Can you bring him into the kitchen? Oh, well, Mrs. Peabody has an army of women in there. I hardly think she will permit us to enter her sanctuary. Neville held up the mangy dog. Uh, what do you want me to do with this? Oh, I don't know. Mrs. Dixon looked over her shoulder at John, who was still talking with the woman who'd identified herself as Mrs. Longhorn. Figure it out. My digestion, Mortimer moaned. When did he get here? Neville gestured toward John with a nod. Did she come with him? Get that beast out of here and feed Martimer. I'll explain later. By the time Mrs. Dixon turned back around, the woman and John had disappeared. She looked about the foyer, anger rising in her chest. Because of her colour, she had experienced a little bit of resistance from the community in the beginning. However, Georgetown was a small town, and in a short time Mrs. Dixon had gotten to know practically everyone. She'd been quite accepted, and no one had even blinked at her looks in years. It was commonly understood that she ran the estate, and most folks commended her for her commitment to the Iscariot family. Beyond that, she was respected. She had not been treated so abominably in fifteen years at least. This woman was clearly not from Georgetown. Excuse me, Mrs. Dixon, a small voice said from behind. Can you come into the yard and tell us what you think of the gazebo? Mrs. Dixon forced a smile onto her face. Despite the uncouth opinion of the arrogant, decrepit old hag, 
Mrs. Dixon was classy, regarded with high esteem, intelligent and professional. She turned to the lady behind her. Of course. Let's take a look, shall we? No one has seen MH-1253 since she escaped. The superintendent's jaw was clenched as his eyes scanned the report that had just come across his desk. Carter crossed his ankle over his opposite knee and waited while his superior read. She's reported to be a master of disguise. Mm. When you combine that with lascivious charm, she could be hiding just about anywhere. Ah, oh, it's times like this. I wish I hadn't retired. You didn't really retire, Carter smirked. Ignoring his colleague's comments, the sergeant TP'd his fingers in contemplation. Then his grey eyes lifted. She's coming back to Georgetown. Well, how do you know? Do you know what a critical mass is, Carter? Can't say I do. The older man shoved the piece of paper aside and leaned forward. It refers to the minimum size or amount of something required to start or maintain a venture. Oh, I see. This is not just about murder. This involves something bigger, a massive operation. Money? Usually. Consider it targets. Rich, aristocratic men. If it's not about money, then I'd say we're dealing with a bona fide sociopath. Carter was too much of a seasoned cop to shudder. Instead, he lit a cigarette and pondered. She'll be more powerful with her team. A bigger amount of something. She's vulnerable on her own, the superintendent agreed. And eventually, she'll be caught. You really believe she has a team in Georgetown? Preliminary investigative reports say that operations originated here. There are procedures put into place that made Georgetown an ideal location, especially considering the high volume of port trade. Well, she had allies like you suspect. They'd be stupid to stick around. They'll be caught. They have to be here, otherwise she wouldn't be able to find them. Carter's companion shook his head. It'd be too risky to send a telegram, and how would they find an address to send it to, anyway? I still think it seems a bit risky to stay here where the arrest was made. They have to know we're on high alert. But two years have passed. After enough time, people grow careless. Can't argue that. I know that we have no actual evidence that she had a team, and that would be to their advantage. First glance, the clues pointed to her being a solo felon. They're likely banking on that. But you believe otherwise, Carter arched a brow. I know it. I've trained four men who've been circulating in plain clothes. If we hear anything, you'll be the first to know. Damn right I will. But so far, we've come up empty. Well, look harder. Carter suppressed a sigh. He knew that the superintendent was one of the most well-respected officers to have served on the New York police force. But Carter was not as convinced as his superior was. Seemed like they were devoting a lot of manpower to this case, solely on spec. Yes, sir. He pushed up from the chair and hesitated. You saw my report on the kid, right? The superintendent nodded without looking up. He was reading the report again. The wheels in his head were turning. He's been removed from your team and reassigned to evening patrol work. Thank you, sir. I expect results from you, Carter. Their gazes met or I'll be considering reassignment of the entire precinct. Carter swallowed. Yes, sir. Understood. The house was finally at peace. The landscapers had finished the lawn, the table set up, the gazebo draped with white gauze and ivy. 
the house had been cleaned top to bottom and the rented decorations were in place. Mortimer had gone up to his room after listening to his evening radio programme and Mrs Iscariot had been tucked into bed for hours now. Mrs Dixon was standing at the stove waiting for the kettle to boil. Neville entered the kitchen, looking through the mail that had just arrived. "'What a day!' Mrs Peabody's voice was weary but pleased. She put the last of her creations into the icebox as Millie came in from the backyard. "'We cooked enough food to feed an army!' "'Is everything ready for the party?' Mrs. Dixon quickly scanned her to-do list. "'Yes, except for the dessert.' Mrs. Peabody wiped her hands on the spotless apron tied about her waist. "'The ice-cream truck should arrive no later than far o'clock.' Mrs. Dixon looked up as Millie entered the kitchen and sat at the counter-stool opposite Neville. "'Is everything all cleaned up?' "'Yes, and I'm exhausted.' Millie rested her forehead on the counter. "'You should go to bed,' suggests Mrs. Peabody. "'We have an early morning ahead of us.' "'I don't know why we have to have this silly party anyway,' Millie protested. "'Master Mortimer doesn't seem the least bit interested.' "'Mortimer will be excited once the ladies start to arrive.' At Mrs. Dixon's statement, Neville looked up from the stack of mail and raised an eyebrow. "'Don't you look at me like that.' The kettle began to whistle and Mrs. Dixon turned off the heat. "'Now, Millie, go on to bed.' "'Pouring two cups of tea, she then carried them carefully to the centre counter. "'Ah, another letter for Mortimer from the Bottlebert Club.' "'Neville's voice was bored. "'The letterhead looks different than usual, though.' "'I can bring it to his room, if you would like,' offered Mrs. Peabody. "'I'm sure it's just another advertisement. "'Neville, put it in Mr. Ascariot's office, "'and I'll let Mortimer know about the letter after the party.' "'You know how easily distracted he is.' Mrs. Dixon glanced over at Millie, who was working up the energy to head upstairs for bed. "'You did fine work today, young lady. "'You may sleep in an extra hour.' "'Oh, joy!' Millie slinked off the stool. she had just made it to the doorway of the kitchen when what sounded like a bomb erupted from the front of the house. Neville looked up from his newspaper and craned his head toward the door. "'Oh, dear God, no!' "'It can't be!' Mrs. Dixon put her hand to her heart. "'What?' Mrs. Peabody was baffled. Millie was running toward the front door. Neville jumped up from his stool, his body not quite as limber as it once was, and with Mrs. Dixon and Mrs. Peabody in tow, they all hurried to the front of the house. Millie had yanked the front door open and was staring across the lawn at the bright pair of headlights that flooded through the front gates and into the darkness toward the mansion. The guards had just opened the gates. "'Who is it?' Millie looked up at her companions. "'Oh, dear!' Mrs. Peabody put her hand to her chest. "'Maybe people got the date and time for the party wrong.' "'No, Falinda!' Mrs. Dixon pushed past them and grabbed her wrap from the coat rack behind the door. "'It's worse than that!' She stared down the steps toward the gate. "'We should go with her,' Neville grumbled to Mrs. Peabody. "'Millie, that's enough for tonight.' Oh, "'But why do I always miss out on all the fun?' "'Off to bed!' Mrs. Peabody ordered before turning and hurrying after Neville. Obediently, but not without severe disappointment, Millie closed the door, leaving the adventure outside, and stood alone in the foyer of the mansion. "'Howdy there!' a voice cried from behind the headlights. "'Oh, what a nice surprise!' Mrs. Dixon managed, shielding her eyes against the glare. "'How about you open them their gates and let us in? "'Bobby's got a wee like the Dickens.' 
There was a hesitation, and Neville glanced over his shoulder at Mrs. Dixon. She pressed her lips into an irritated line. Of course, Neville turned away from the irritated nanny. Thank you much, Neville. It's the Pinkleys, Mrs. Peabody announced with enthusiastic realisation. Yes, Philinda, Mrs. Dixon stepped out of Neville's way as he pulled the massive iron gates open. It's the Binkley's. Mr. Binkley put the dilapidated car into drive and hit the gas, steering the car into the driveway of the Iscariot property. Been on the road for hours, Jeb called cheerfully through the open driver's side window. He hit the brake again and the car backfired. Mrs. Peabody grabbed Mrs. Dixon in fright. Oh, what a horrible sound. Have you had someone check that out? Neville was irritated. Well, I looked at it. Too much fuel in the exhaust, Jeb announced proudly. I ain't worried about it, though. Jeb, baby, my bladder. Oh, dear. Overhearing the urgent voice from inside the vehicle, Mrs. Peabody leaned down and waved. Hello there, Bobby Sue. Why don't you get out the car and I'll show you inside? Thank you kindly. Bobby Sue immediately leapt out of the car and closed the door. Before leaving, she leaned down and peered into the darkness of the cab. Percy, you go with Neville and your par to the garage in the back to park the car. I'll see y'all in the house. But what about Ricky? Percy's voice resonated from the back seat. "'Bring Ricky in with you when you've all parked, baby.' "'Follow us,' Mrs. Dixon gestured toward the house, "'and the ladies started back up the walkway. "'Who's Ricky?' Mrs. Peabody whispered to Mrs. Dixon. "'Bobby Sue shrugged in reply. "'It's so dark I can hardly see,' Bobby Sue commented. "'Y'all don't have any stars. "'Why, in West Virginia, we got stars for miles. "'We've just finished redoing the landscape.' Mrs. Peabody felt the need to defend her home. "'What brings you to Georgetown?' Mrs. Dixon got straight to the point. Bobby Sue wrung her hands anxiously. "'How about we talk all about it once we settle inside?' "'Of course,' Mrs. Dixon clenched her teeth. This was the last thing she needed before Mortimer's party. Mrs. Iscariot's brother, Jebedar Binkley, and his family were the most ridiculous, backwards, unsophisticated hillbillies that she'd ever encountered. If there was ever an antidote to the rich and dignified, it was the Binkleys. This was a disaster waiting to happen, and Mrs. Dixon had to get rid of them, immediately. But why had they come? And all the way from West Virginia, too. Had they been sent an invitation by mistake? The thought filled her with dread. If they had, in fact, received an invitation, sending them away would be virtually impossible. Who in God's name would do such an idiotic thing? Mrs. Dixon wondered. Then she snarled. It was probably Neville. He was clearly not as committed to this venture as she was, and it was not improbable that his lack of neuroticism about the success of this party could have set him up to make a careless and stupid mistake. Mrs. Dixon continued to fume as Mrs. Peabody showed Mrs. Binkley the toilet. "'Shall we put the tea on again?' Mrs. Peabody asked after the door of the powder room had closed. "'I don't want to do anything to encourage them to stay.' Oh, Elizabeth, it's after nine o'clock. You can hardly expect them to drive back home. There are several fine hotels in town that they can check into. Oh, we have dozens of rooms here. There were voices in the kitchen. Yielded more crop this season than the last three combined. I don't want to wear these shoes. They crush my feet. Boy, you stop a complaining, or I'll tan your behind. I'm eighteen. I'm not a boy no more. 
Mrs. Dixon and Mrs. Peabody looked at one another as the toilet flushed. "'Don't say I didn't warn you,' muttered Mrs. Dixon. Mrs. Binkley emerged from the bathroom looking much more cheerful. "'Is that my boys are here? I must ask you to keep your voices down.' Mrs. Dixon said, feigning equanimity. There are people asleep in the house. At that moment, the front door opened and a man in black stepped into the shadowed manor foyer. Mrs. Dixon whirled around at the sound and her heart stopped. The figure was looming toward them, draped in a cloak from shoulders to feet. It was the killer. Fear was like a bucket of ice that drenched her in frozen terror. Unable to move, Mrs. Dixon's mind went blank. She willed herself to move, but her feet were glued to the floor. She had failed. Failed the Iscariots and her friends. Mrs. Peabody had been right. They should have notified the authorities. But she, in all her pride, had told them not to. That she would take care of it. All of it, ending with the blackmailer walking in through the front door and murdering every last one of them. Mrs. Dixon bemoaned her demise. For only moments ago she had thought they had arrived at the apex of disaster upon the unwelcomed arrival of the asinine Binkleys two days before the party that was designed to ensure her emancipation. Now she could only wish to have been that lucky. With a shriek of terror, Mrs. Peabody passed out. Mrs. Dixon, jarred out of her internal eulogy, jumped away as a mighty squeal erupted from behind them. Bobby Sue put her head down, and with fists flying she shot across the foyer with a war cry emitting from her throat. What the woomph! Mrs. Binkley pummeled drove her head into the killer's abdomen, much like a rabid ram might strike its opponent. Ooh, ouch! cried the shadowy man. Stop that this instant! Mrs. Dixon put her hands to her lips to stifle a laugh. What are you doing to my wife? Jebedar Binkley rounded the corner with Neville and Percy by his side. Mrs. Dixon turned on the foyer light, flooding the room with light. Well, what do you know? Mr. Binkley grinned as he realized that his wife had knocked John to the marble ground. She'd climbed on him and was presently slapping away. We got ourselves visit from the city boy. Jeb elbowed his son. Look at that, Percy. Yo mama's beating up your Uncle John. Ha! Uh, "'Maybe she should stop assaulting your sister's brother-in-law?' Neville suggested from behind. "'She's just having little fun.' But as suggested, Jeb went to his wife and captured one of her flailing hands. "'Baby! Bobby, darling! Let me at him!' She spat, her eyes manic and wild. "'Baby, it's old Johnny boy. Come now, you're gonna make him cry.' She straightened herself, and her pretty face broke out into a wide grin. Well, well, ain't that a fact? My God, woman, teach you to walk into someone else's house uninvited? Mrs. Dixon suppressed the urge to laugh at the exchange. The visit from the Binkleys had taken an unexpected turn for the positive. She crossed her arms and watched as John wriggled around on the floor in an attempt to regain his dignity. What happened to that lady? Percy gestured toward Mrs. Peabody. Oh, dear, Mrs. Dixon dropped to her friend's side. She must have been so startled by John coming into the foyer unannounced like that. Neville, get the smelling salts. What about me? John protested. He was sitting now, and he rubbed his eye. I think she gave me a black eye. You brought this on yourself. You need to get a little country in you. 
Bobby Sue knelt down to look at John's face. That was far too easy. I've seen men half your size put up a better fight. You fight men often, then? Course I do. I'm a fine catch, and when Jeb here's out in the field and Percy at school, I chased away men and bear alike. Bear, <laughs> great, John sulked, rubbing his head and eyes while checking himself for injuries. How was he going to explain a black eye to Mrs. Longhorn when she came back for the party? How about we get you some eyes? Bobby Sue patted his shoulder. Neville will get some, Mrs. Dixon gestured absently, pulling Mrs. Peabody into her arms. As if on cue, Neville returned with the bag of smelling salts, a bag of ice already in hand. He tossed the bag into John's lap and gave Mrs. Dixon the salts. Ooh! John jumped as the bag landed between his legs. Much your aim! There, that did it, observed Mrs. Dixon as Mrs. Peabody's eyelashes fluttered. What happened? John invited himself over, dressed like a proler, scared you to pieces. Oh, dear. Jeb was at her side. Lamme help you, ma'am. He smelled like tobacco and something a bit less pleasant. Mrs. Dixon held her breath as they lifted Mrs. Peabody. Neville? Mrs. Dixon took a step away from Jeb. Show our guests to their rooms. Thank you for taking care of us in such shout notice. Bobby Sue was grateful. Percy, darling, unload the car. But ma... No buts, Jeb interjected. Doja mama say. What's going on down there? A deep voice boomed from the top of the staircase. I had been quite deeply drenched in the restorative trenches of sleep and was rudely interrupted by a series of inappropriate and disturbing noises from you jocular night owls. Mortimer, darling, your cousins have arrived. The colour drained from Mortimer's face at his nanny's words. His eyes fell upon Percy and narrowed. Percy, on the other hand, broke into a massively wide look of pure glee. It's Maudie! Percy, darling, you can play with Mortimer in the morning, Bobby Sue stated, much to her nephew's dismay. Mortimer, everyone is on their way to bed. We're sorry to have awoken you, said Mrs. Dixon. I hardly believe that the King of the Isles had to deal with such nonsense. Mortimer must have been satisfied, however, for he disappeared back into his room. Well, now, um, shall I show you to your quarters? Neville gestured to the staircase. I'm in the Moroccan room on the second floor, my usual, announced John, holding the bag of ice to his face. And where are your things? Irritation bubbled in Mrs. Dixon's chest at John's smile. Ah, you already moved yourself in. See you all in the morning, John grinned with triumph as he headed up the stairs. Mrs. Dixon would have to speak with Neville about that later. Neville's job, after all, was to manage the guests of the estate. People moving in without warning was not acceptable. She cleared her throat and addressed him now. Neville, how about the Binkley's day on the third floor? They will have plenty of room up there. But fine, Neville turned to Jeb. Uh, can I help you with your bags? Percy'll take care of it, Jeb grinned and elbowed Neville. Why else have a son? Mm. Neville coughed as Jeb's elbow contacted his ribs. But quite right. I'm going to turn in myself, Mrs. Peabody yawned. It's been a long day, and my dear husband went up hours ago. Of course, you must be exhausted. I'll see you in the morning, Felinda. After Mrs. Peabody went upstairs, Bobby Sue and Mrs. Dixon were left alone standing in the foyer. 
Do you not want to go up to your room? Bobby Sue clenched her hands, appearing uncharacteristically nervous. Mrs. Dixon, I need your help. We're in big trouble, I'm afraid. Well, what do you mean? Well, we've tried everything, you see. Purse'll be ruined if you can't help. If anyone can save him, it's you. Mrs. Binkley grasped Mrs. Dixon's hand in desperation. Please, please, save our son. What on earth are you talking about? Bobby Sue's eyes were moist. If Percy does not change his ways, all hope for our family is lost. He's the future of the Binkleys. I, I know I've pampered him and Jeb. God bless his heart. He, he do try his best, but you know Percy. Bobby Sue lowered her eyes. Filled with a surge of pride at Mrs. Binkley's confidence and compliments, Mrs. Dixon squeezed the woman's hands in a gesture meant to comfort. I understand. You leave it to me. Come rain or come shine, on my honour, Percy will be made into a well-mannered gentleman. Learn more at www.mortimabook.com Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars Written by M.W. Cedars, the author pseudonym Audiobook performance by Michael Drew Neither this author, nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction, and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.